Good morning, everybody. It is so great to see you this morning. Uh, if you'll open your Bibles to John chapter 16, we're going to be studying verses 1 through 15 this morning. So grateful also for the time off uh, that uh, the team and y'all had uh, given us uh, to go visit Micah and Marissa in Memphis, Tennessee. That's our son and daughter-in-law and gives me a chance to go be a gospel grandpa uh, to Adeline. And uh, so thank you for those such sweet moments that we get to share with our kids. Um, I was so blessed by Alan's sermon last Sunday. It was so faith-building. If you weren't able to, to uh, if you weren't here last Sunday and you weren't able to hear it, I encourage you go back and go back and hear it. And uh, I think it'd be even helpful this morning to remind you of his main point because it provides a really, really wonderful foundation and really gives us momentum in going into our verses for this morning and even helping us uh, understand the text even more readily. His main point was this, the triune God unites us to himself to sustain our faith and empower our witness. And much of that theme is going to continue on as Jesus keeps unpacking this teaching into John chapter 16. So keep that in mind. And then as we read our text, I love to, to tell you to be on the lookout for things. We want to, we want to read the Bible intentionally, meaning, meaning that we're looking, what is the context that is being established in, in the scripture that we're reading today? What's the context to it? What, what, what would you consider to be the main point of this text as we're reading it? So I want you to be looking for that, particularly, would you be on the lookout for the vital role that the Holy Spirit plays in equipping us with the gospel as well as empowering our mission uh, until Jesus comes again. Even the title of the message kind of gives you some of that, gives it away a little bit. Uh, I don't know that we speak enough about our need for the Holy Spirit in missions and evangelism. See if, see if that stands out to you as we read the text this morning. Would you stand with me as we read God's holy and inspired and inerrant word? If you're visiting with us this morning, this is not just a traditional moment in our service. Uh, this is just a recognition. We, we are the most forgetful people on earth. We, we forget important things. We remember trivial things. Sometimes I think we forget that when we approach God's word, we're not approaching a blog. We're not approaching a newspaper. This isn't an article on 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 a sports event. This isn't an academic work. This is the word of God. It's inerrant. It's inspired. It's sufficient for life and godliness. And it's authoritative. And I think it gives us an opportunity to, to even now not be like a lot of church attenders. They, they wait till the end of the sermon to evaluate it. Actually, you know, the, the, the word is supposed to evaluate us. We're not supposed to evaluate the word. I think it's a great thing to go into the word praying, God, here am I. I'm, I'm already putting my, my heart in a place of submission to whatever it is that you want to speak to me today. We just forget those things if we don't remind ourselves now and then. 
So let's, let's listen and be thankful that God is a speaking God. Chapter 16, verse 1. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I say these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Well, Lord, just as the Holy Spirit inspired this text to those apostles to write it down, so that we could benefit from the same word that benefited them. We, we just want to humble ourselves and say, we need help to understand something so precious. God, we don't want to assume that just because we're breathing today that we can understand. Holy Spirit, would you help us to understand the word of Christ? Help us to apply the word of Christ. And may Christ receive all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> I hope you, you noticed it. Did you, did you notice that Jesus actually said it would be better for the disciples and ultimately for us if he went away? If we could put ourselves in the sandals of the apostles that night, what, what, what would they be feeling? And how could we, how could we relate somehow a little bit to what they were experiencing 
that night. I don't think we'd agree with Jesus. <laughs> I don't think we would think it's a great thought that, we, that he's going to go away. Sure, Jesus, sure. Oh, yeah, no worries. You're sending us out without you into a world that will reject us, maybe even kill us. And it will be better if you're not there. Well, I'm having trouble here. Can you help me understand how that's better? Well, one of the things that we all tend to have in common is the fear of someone we love and someone we need to leave us alone, to leave us all alone, to face life with all of its pain and trouble. This is a common denominator about mankind, about fallen mankind. Would any of us be able to conceive of a future that would be better without someone we loved and needed so much? Let's start giving some examples to that. You know, my first instincts when my dad and my mom died was not to see their deaths as moving me toward a better future. <laughs> I, that's not what I was feeling. I'm just going to give you some names of some precious people that over the course of these last 30 years in this church, I, I felt the same way when Charles Lockler died. I felt the same way when Jane Mosley, or more recently, Vicki Mosley, died. This is better? When Mike Reeves died, Mike was one of the most precious men. He needed double lung transplants. He came every Sunday. He was here every Sunday. Didn't matter that he struggled to breathe. He was staying on the worship team. He came back, stood behind one of those microphones with his oxygen tank by his side, singing the praises of God. He gets to the hospital. They, they identified lungs to transplant into him. And he's waiting for the surgery. And he died. Raymond Watson. How is that better with Raymond dying? Amy Alvampato's dad, Jack Maisie, when Jack died. When our beloved John Nichols died. Or just recently when Tom Strope died. The deaths of people we loved and needed could not be better, could they? Unless. Unless their deaths actually moved us closer to knowing and experiencing Jesus more personally and more purposefully, or I would even say more missionally. A pastor named J.D. Greer and a man named Trevin Wax wrote a book based on John 16 that seeks to help us understand what Jesus was wanting to get across to us. The book is called Jesus Continued. That's an interesting two words to put together. Jesus Continued, and this is, this is a subtitle. Why the Spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. Pretty good, isn't it? I wish I could be concise like that. It'll take me 25 minutes to just talk about that. And just, he says it in six words. Maybe when I go to heaven, I'll be more brief. I don't know. I don't know if there's any hope for me. 
why the spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. So before we begin to unpack that, I just want to want to kind of think back to redemptive history. Let's remember that this principle is not a new thought. The principle is not a new thought in scripture. The disciples should have had some little bit of understanding of this. This was going to be a way different experience because the spirit was going to come and indwell them. But in fact, the thought that God actually uses death to point us toward a better future um, for, uh, follows the redemptive timeline from the fall of Adam to the first and second comings of Christ. That's actually the storyline of the Bible. That death didn't have victory ever because of the promise of Christ to come. Think about it. Can you imagine how Seth if you're new to your Bible, Seth was the third son of Adam and Eve. Cain had killed Abel, the, and, and uh, so Cain was uh, marked by his sin. Seth was the, the, the first one after that horror to be identified as, as the righteous line that the Messiah would come through. Can you imagine how Seth would have felt when Adam died? Can you imagine how that would have been? His absence surely cannot move me toward a better future. He was the first human being for crying out loud. More importantly, he was the only one, he and mom were the only ones to know what life was like before this sin that we've all been infected with. What was that like? And God, you're taking him? What are we going to do without that kind of of resource. How could Adam's absence be better than his presence? Well, it would not unless his death brought sinful humanity another generation closer to the coming of the better Adam. Or even more appropriately, the last Adam is what scripture calls Jesus. The one who could defeat sin and crush the serpent's head. Amen? Hmm, wow, death takes on a little bit of a different tone then. This would compel Seth to live a life of faithfulness to the glory of God and, and faithfulness to God. Can you imagine Isaac grieving the death of Abraham? How could the death of the one we call the father of faith, the one whose future seed would be the source of blessing from people, for, for people from every people group with the gift of salvation, they would all be blessed, every ethnicity. The death of the one God made a covenant with, the death of the one that Abraham experienced this amazing vision of the smoking furnace and torch, cutting a covenant with this animal and, and Abraham's beholding it all. How could that be good, Lord? How could we be better off without him unless his death moved fallen mankind one generation closer to the coming of Messiah? You see, Christians have a different way of looking at the world, don't we? We have a different worldview when it comes to life and death and eternity. That compel Isaac to live a life of faithfulness to God for the glory of God. Can you imagine how Joshua felt when Moses died? Or how Solomon felt when David died? Unless their deaths brought their generations closer to the coming of a better Moses and to the coming of the son of David who would live forever. Wow. 
So I guess it is possible that the death of someone we love could actually be moving us toward a better future. But none of that could compare to what Jesus was telling the disciples now. Because now the Messiah had come. That's already one win, right? The Messiah, the promised one, had come. But now he's saying he's leaving. Okay, well, we've got a pretty good Old Testament track record. Not, we shouldn't panic here. But it's even better with what Jesus says. He says, I'm going to send my spirit to indwell you to be with you forever. I'm going to accomplish mission and evangelism in you and through you, through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. He's going to be in union with you. That's why I pointed out the union with with, uh, Lyndon and the water and her shirt. He's going to be in union with them to indwell them, to abide in them, to empower them, to bring the good news of the gospel to save sinners from every people group on earth before he comes again to bring in a new creation of a new heavens and earth where Christ would for the rest of eternity be with his people. So even that future is better, isn't it? But right now, the better is the presence of the Spirit indwelling the people of God. Do you understand that the the new covenant really is called the age of the Spirit? It's the age of the Spirit. Now, not that we're focusing attention on him, because as we're going to study this morning, the age of the Spirit glorifying Christ. The age of the Spirit as he glorifies Christ. It was better for Jesus to go, wasn't it? Because it opened the door for the Spirit to bring about our salvation through regeneration and faith in Christ. It was better for Him to be in us, to transform us. You ever try changing yourself? (laughs) Doesn't work. Need someone else to come in who's stronger than us, who's pure and holy and loving to transform us. To become more like Jesus, not only in his character, but in his mission. And that's where the text really is going to take us today. Main point this morning, it's just a very simple one. It's in your notes. We need Christ's spirit to accomplish Christ's mission for Christ's glory. I think you just witnessed a miracle. I said something briefly. <laughs> That's how I felt this morning. Yeah, I had, I had, I had our five main, main points that I was trying to craft, right? And none of them, they were long, they had semicolons and commas and dot, dot, dots. And oh my goodness. And this morning, this just the Holy Spirit. But isn't it just true? We need Christ's spirit to accomplish Christ's mission for Christ's glory. Let's see what this looks like. First part, we're going to see in verses 1 through what we could call 4a. And the point, first point is God sends us to the very people who reject us. And I, I just, 
You guys, I think that, that, that just even that sentence is a word of hope and encouragement, maybe conviction, to some of us who've actually been pulling away from people we're in conflict with. Conflict, conflict with. So let's keep that in mind. Verse 1, Jesus said, I've said all these things to you. And he's not only saying them to those apostles sitting with him in the upper room or on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's saying that to us. I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. The the grammar there is actually to keep you from falling into a trap. To keep you from thinking that just because you're going through some hard time that somehow God has left you. No, no. You're going through a hard time. I told you you were going to go through a hard time. I told you you're going to be living for me. You're going to be shining a light for me. The world doesn't like the light turned on when, they're, when they love darkness. You like, so let's get it out of the moral category. Do you like the light turned on when, when you've just about fallen asleep and bingo, hi, and whoever, you know, have, have you ever noticed people who turn the lights on, they're obnoxiously happy. They, they just, I am just about asleep. And I don't appreciate you turning the light on. And that's not even moral. What is it if you love darkness and somebody turns on the light? He says, I'm telling you these things because I don't want you to fall into the trap. Christianity's hard. Your best life now is actually going to be your best life then. It's going to be when we stand face to face with Jesus. That's the best life. That'll be awesome. Right now, we're following the Lord. We're following our cross bearer, our sin bearer. And we're going to proclaim the same life and death and resurrection that he demonstrated personally. So I'm telling you these things to keep you from falling away. That's good news. That's good news because your salvation is ultimately dependent upon him and not you. So I'm telling you these things. Why? Because I'm going to hold you. I'm going to keep you from falling away, especially when you're being persecuted. When the Spirit gives, the Spirit comes. So he's talking about, up until this point, if you haven't been with us through the study, he's been talking about sending the Spirit, and, and he's talked about the comfort that we would receive through the Holy Spirit. But again, you guys, we are so immersed in a fallen world that rejects Jesus and just tries to find answers in itself, in the human mind, in the human heart. We, we, are, we live in a, in a culture of therapy. I'm all for therapy, particularly biblical therapy. I'm all for therapy, but I'm also for therapy that, because we're, we are fallen and we are broken and, and we need help. We just need help. You know, when you struggle with various illnesses or mental illnesses, we, we definitely need help. But when the Lord gives us comfort, it's not just therapy. Therapy tends to end with us. That's kind of the way, all the, the, you know, I don't know that the therapeutic world is actually wanting to help you so you can go win a world for Jesus. I don't know that they're, they're, they're wanting you to be amazingly fruitful and successful. I, I think they're just, they're, they're, their biggest goal is to help you be you, right? Help you be you. When Jesus gives us comfort, it, it is therapeutic. So don't get me wrong. Don't you, aren't you blessed by God's comfort? Yes. Aren't you blessed by his peace? 
Aren't you blessed by his counsel? All of that is going to continue. But when God comforts the human heart, it is for the purpose of being courageous. Comfort isn't just to end with comfort. I, guys, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, if nothing else, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm the example of what not to be to you. So many times my prayers are, God, help, comfort me. <laughs> but I just have me in mind. I just have me in mind, and actually that's going to come up in the text. God loves to comfort us, but it's to send us out on the mission that Jesus died for. The comfort isn't to end with you. It's to compel you to go and live on mission for him so that we don't shrink back when persecution comes. Then he gives some specifics that he didn't say in the, the end of chapter 15. Even when we're excommunicated, put out of the synagogue, isolated, lied about, your reputation trying to be ruined. Anybody been through that kind of, boy, that's a tough one. When you haven't really done anything wrong, but somebody's trying to ruin your reputation so that you lose jobs, you lose income, you lose friends, you lose family. You're, this is the ultimate unfriending. This is the ultimate being canceled. Isolation does a number on the human thought life. And, it, and one of the biggest problems that it does is it makes us look at God in a wrong way oftentimes. Even when the times come, when those who seek to bring persecution through execution, so now Jesus brings that in. It's, it's not just an excommunication and isolation and treat you like a leper. There's a time coming when, when some will think they are doing God a service by putting you to death. And what Jesus could have said right there was what? Just like you're about to see me experience about 30 hours from now. They thought they were doing God a service by putting him to death, didn't they? And so he's saying, you know what? It's going to happen for some of my people too. So even when the times come and those who seek to bring persecution or isolation, they're doing these things, verse 3, so get your nose in the book. They're doing these things because they don't know the Father or me. So again, in my shallow reading of the Bible, it's just so much of my reading, so much of my reading can be so shallow. I just think, oh, so God's just giving me an excuse for why they're going to hate me. No. God's wanting to break my heart with that statement. See, all I'm worried about is me. God is saying, they're doing these things because they're lost. They're dead. And they need the gospel. It's not how I read it, yo, for, at first glance. That's why context is so important when you're studying God's word. This is, not, this is not giving a reason for persecution. It's giving a reason for mission. Please, do you hear that? This isn't just giving us a reason why we're going to be persecuted. How many times have you heard it taught like that? No, this is a reason for our mission. This is a reason for moving forward, not retreating. That's why that statement is there. Verse 4a then, he says, So I tell you these things, that when they come, you won't be surprised. You will be sent to be my witnesses. 
I'm sending you in to the war, not calling you away from the war. So listen, don't you love, again, let, let's, let's kind of think of how we think, how we kind of think a little bit incompletely about some things. Wouldn't you like to be known as a person of grace? Come on. Wouldn't you like to be? Oh, no, not me, man. I'm I'm the guilt person. Anyway, wouldn't wouldn't you like to be known as a person of grace? Okay, I got to. I'm going to reel you in now. Okay. You know what grace does? Grace moves toward the sinful. Grace moves toward the hurting. Grace moves first, doesn't it? Is it that you first loved God and then that got God's attention? <laughs> so, oh, well, that's so nice. I'm going to love you, Casey. You didn't make the first move, did you? Grace makes the first move. And it makes the first move to save sinners. And think about, don't raise any hands. There's probably at least couple couples here who are having conflict and you haven't talked to each other much more right now for somebody it may be that the only common denominator between the husband and wife is the current argument you're having there's nothing else that's holding you in common right now it doesn't feel like feels like this this argument is the only thing we have in common and what do we tend to do with that she's going that way I'm going this way Maybe there's more silence going on than talk. You want to be a grace person? What are you going to do? I'm going to make the first move is what I'm going to do. Just like Jesus did for me. He, while I was still a sinner, died for the ungodly. He made the first move. He didn't wait for me to get my act together. That's what missions and evangelism is, you guys. We are called to make the first move. Always. Because he made the first move to us. That's what it's called to be a person of grace. And so that's this first point, is that he's sending us to the very people who reject us. But now let's go a little further here. Now, that should make you a little bit itchy, <laughs> a little bit wiggly in your, in your chair because it's easy to just think about doing that by yourself. And that's where the next part of this comes in to say, hang on, I'm not asking you to do this by yourself. Let's go to the next part. This, is, this, <laughs> this may be a weird way of saying this, but I think it's the text, so you, you judge it. Second point. Christ not only sends us to the people who reject us, Christ sends a great missionary to indwell us and empower our mission. So, who am I speaking about? Thank you. (laughs) I was a little sweating there. I I didn't know what missionary you might be thinking of. Uh, Did you ever think of the Holy Spirit as the great missionary? And he lives in you. And how often we, we, have, we don't have much contact with him in that area, do we? Oh, but I want to be a spirit-filled Christian. Do you? The Holy Spirit is the great missionary. 
the great evangelist. He comes to indwell you. One of the reasons I think believers' lives feel so empty is because you're not living for the reason he made you. You're not living for the reason he saved you for. I'm getting ahead of myself, so let's dig in a little bit further. Verse 4b says, I have not said these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. I had, you were beside, I was, I was beside you, right? So at this point, that's, that's, that was for those three years, that was very appropriate, having Jesus beside them. Me present with you was what you most needed then. But now, verses 5 and 6, I'm going to go to him who sent me, and none of you now asks where I'm going. So I want you to think of a very somber, really probably depressed feeling room here. A bunch of men who are, who are experiencing some, some forms of major discouragement, if not low-grade depression. But because I've said these things to you, you have great sorrow in your heart. He says, none of you now are asking where I'm going. They'd already done that. Do you remember? A couple chapters back, they already started saying, where are you going? Where are you going? Now they're just sad. They're not saying anything anymore, but they're just sad. And they're suffering in silence. Again, I just, they're just, I, I, I totally could miss it, guys, but there are just times I feel like the Holy Spirit gives me a sense of things in our church family. I, I fear how many of you may suffer in silence. It kills me. It kills Hugh. It kills Alan. It kills the hearts of your elders. It kills our small group leaders, our discipleship group leaders. We want no one to suffer in silence. God didn't intend that for you. God wanted to give you Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit as your helper, and the church as your friend. Please don't suffer in silence. If, if you have something going on that you need prayer for today, please come to one of our prayer people today. Come to Hugh. Uh, Alan's out of town today. I'll be back in the back foyer. Come to any of our leaders, our small group leaders. Don't suffer in silence. But that's what these guys are doing. And even when they asked where he was going, I don't think it was because they were interested in where he was going <laughs> and why he was going. D.A. Carson said this was more like the little boy and his dad who were just getting into the car to go fishing. And dad's phone rang. And it was an emergency. And dad said, I'm going to have to cancel the trip, son. I have to go answer an emergency. And the son says, Dad, why? Where are you going? He's not really looking for an explanation, is he? What he's really just saying is, I want you to be with me. I, I want you to be with me. I'm really asking this just because of my own heart and my own need for you. They didn't yet understand why Christ had to die. We have such a benefit of having the Gospels. They didn't understand yet why Christ had to die, be raised from the dead, ascend into heaven, let alone send the Holy Spirit to indwell them in order to accomplish the mission that he was going to send them on. Don't you love that verse? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. Are you leaning on the Lord? Or are you leaning on your feelings? Are you leaning on your suffering? Are you more aware? That, that, that's what you're mostly focused on is how much I'm hurting or how bitter I am or how angry I am. 
Those things are not going to direct your path, except the wrong paths. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Trust in his love. Trust in his plan. Trust in his power. And so Jesus, that's where he's going to take them. He wants them to know that where God guides, God provides. So he's going to send us into the world to bring the gospel to people, some of which will persecute us. But where God guides, God provides. So verse 7a, truly, truly, I say to you, it is to your advantage that I go away. If I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So remember what we said in the introduction. This is Jesus now telling them that the spirit he would send to be inside them will be better than his physical presence beside them. Inside, not beside. Let's once again try to put, the, put their sandals on our feet. Better understand how hard this was to hear. You guys, I just, again, here's one of those things that I just don't know that we're crossing the bridge here and making connections between our life and their lives. And, and we need to make much bigger connection here. These guys made radical, life-altering, sometimes career-changing choices to follow Jesus 24-7. They had breakfast, lunch, and dinner with him. They encountered life's trials and sins and sorrows and hate and persecution with him. They, they heard perfect teaching from him every day. They learned to pray because of his prayer life. They saw sicknesses healed, storms stopped, demons cast out, and the dead raised when they were with him. But here's where I don't think we make this connection. The Lord was trying to teach us what discipleship looked like during those three years. Sadly, I think we've kind of relegated discipleship to we attend church once a week, and maybe if we're really radical, we go to a small group meeting. Yeah. Oh, and, and we, have pay, we have personal daily devotions, <clears throat> although... My devotions aren't always very personal, and they often aren't very daily. We might share the gospel, but not because we're looking for opportunities every day, but because they occasionally fall into our lap. And then, and then we tend to go on with the rest of our day, working and parenting and navigating singleness and trying to figure out marriage and longing for quitting time or the weekend or vacation time. And a lot of that time, we're not consciously seeing our lives as moment-by-moment moment walks with Jesus. Every moment of the day. And then consider that his telling them about sending the helper to indwell them, they didn't immediately understand that either. And they came by that honestly. Because if the Holy Spirit was really going to come and indwell and empower all of them and every believer from that time forward, it was going to mark a major change from what they, they knew of their Old Testament. It's going to be a major change. In the Old Testament, the Spirit only came upon a few people for specific assignments they received from God. Not every Old Testament believer experienced the sort of, that sort of intimate ministry of the Holy Spirit. But now Jesus is saying he's going to send the Holy Spirit to all of them. So this would be a mind boggler. You mean, you mean I get to sort of be like Moses? I get to maybe experience a little of what David 
experienced? And I think Jesus would say, better. What you have is going to be better. They would be jealous for what you have. So here again, I just don't want to make assumptions, you guys. It's just easy for us to know. Okay, so he's going away and to immediately think, let's rush to the Spirit. That's not first what he's saying. Let's don't just rush to the Holy Spirit and bypass the cross. He had to go away to die, to die. That was the centerpiece of all this. The penalty of sin had to be paid. The righteous wrath and justice of God had to be satisfied so that forgiveness and righteousness of Christ could be extended and adoption offered. Guys, do you realize how clean we have to be for the holy, holy, holy spirit of God to join himself to us? I, I just, we, we think so small of God and so big of ourselves. That one really got me when I was studying. I'm the worst sinner I know. And yet, oh, what an amazing mystery that his grace has come to me because of the blood he shed punishment he paid that I should have paid for all eternity. Let's remember, if Jesus were to merely remain physically present with his people, the greater works that, remember, the greater works shall ye do because I go to the Father, those greater works wouldn't happen. Because Jesus would just be physically present with just a few people at, that, at, a, at a moment in time. But if the Spirit came to indwell all of God's people, there, there would always be a, a growing expansion of His presence. He's, he's everywhere all the time anyway. But in terms of manifesting His presence in the gospel, the, if He's indwelling people, His glory is going to progressively fill the earth through His image bearers. So this is really good that He goes away. And if I go away, I'll send the helper to you. I'm going to send the greatest missionary you could ever imagine to come and live in you, to be joined to you and to empower you. Not just for comfort or peace or to get you through your personal sorrows and sins. He'll do that. But also so that he can send you to make disciples of all nations. We call this series Believe, but we could have called it Sent. We really could have. So again, as you're reading, in fact... Would you, keep, would you just keep reading the rest of John until we finish it? Just 16 and, and on. Keep reading it again and again. And you're going to notice again and again, sent, 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 sent. Particularly as he was sent into the world, so he sends us into the world. That's, that could have been, the, we could have called that our sermon title, our sermon series. But we need Christ's spirit, don't we? We need Christ's spirit to accomplish Christ's mission for Christ's glory. <sighs> Guys, we're not at a disadvantage to not have Jesus physically present with us. Massive numbers of people were with Jesus physically and with, with him in his physical presence. They heard his perfect teaching. They saw his powerful miracles. Yet his physical presence and miracles were not the key to opening people's hearts to love and follow him. How many people rejected him during his three years of public ministry? And when the helper sent to you, though, and when you are sent into the world, 
Here's what the helper will do. One of the main purposes, one of the main works of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. You know what's sad in the United States today? I don't even know how many churches even believe in those three things anymore. We wonder why there's no revival in our land. The Holy Spirit comes to do this work. We've seen him come as a comforter and as a peace giver. But now this word conviction, we see him coming as a prosecuting attorney. He presents evidence to a person to help them wake up to the fact that they are guilty sinners. He he cares enough for us to actually show us what's really happening. Haven't you gone to a doctor and they gave you a diagnosis that was not favorable, scary, and you didn't believe it because you didn't feel it. You, you felt okay. I said, no, there's something. I'm trying to tell you of a reality you're not aware of. And that's what the gospel does. That's what the ministry of the Spirit does. The, the Spirit opens up the heart to, to understand there is a reality that I have been clueless to because I've been blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice. And he does so in a way not only to make them feel guilty. If you're visiting with us today, this might be a point we're going, oh, it's one of those churches. I'm going to leave here feeling guilty. Well, you might. I don't I, don't. I mean, I, I, you know, come talk to me after all. I'll do my best to try to help you not leave here feeling guilty. That's not the ministry. The, the ministry's not over yet, is it? You should feel guilty if you've sinned against the only person in the universe who loves you perfectly. If you've put your fist up to his face and said, I don't need you, you should feel guilty about that. But this prosecuting attorney doesn't just come to make you feel guilty, but to show you the way that sin can be forgiven and guilt removed, and give a desire to be reconciled in love to the very God you've committed treason against. And when he speaks of the world, he's not saying that, that, the, that this is people without exception, this isn't universal salvation. He's really seeing, saying that this will come to people without distinction. In other words, there will be people from every age group, every ethnic group that will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. So he gives us conviction of sin, which is no easy task. How many people do you know? Do you even sometimes do this? I still can do this. They don't naturally see themselves as sinners, but only those people that we make mistakes and and we're not perfect, or just, if I just had a little more education, that'd be, that's, that's the cure-all, right? Just educate yourself out of your moral depravity. Um, perhaps maybe I wouldn't have the character problems I have if I would have come from a better family. My mom wouldn't have told me again and again, I wished you were never born. I bet I'd be a better person if it wasn't for her. We're not constantly trying to justify but instead, we're trying to justify our sinfulness or to blame it on someone else. I'm not proud. I'm just confident. <laughs> 
I'm not self-righteous. I just tell it like it is. You ever notice you don't have many friends? I'm not, ap- I'm not apathetic and uncaring. I'm just tired. Isn't that a classic marriage thing? Is everything okay? I'm just tired. I'm not angry. I just give people what they deserve. I'm not a gossip. I just share my concerns with others. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm just social. (laughs) I like to unwind after a long day. That's why Jesus said that the root of this sin, so let's just take murder and adultery. He says, that's why I'm not just talking to you about what you're physically doing with your hands. I'm talking about what's going on in your heart. So the root for the sin of murder was anger, right? The root of the sin of adultery is lust. That's where I'm trying to get to. That's where the Holy Spirit can get to. It's not just conviction of sins individually, but of the foundational sin of unbelief. They do not believe in Christ. The greatest sin is not to believe in Christ. And that's why you're doing all your other sins. You don't believe in him, so of course that gives you just what you think is just this freedom to live however you want to live. The greatest sin is not to believe in Christ. But sinners don't even see unbelief as a sin. They don't even see unbelief as a sin. Instead, they actually see not believing in Christ as a virtue. You ever talk to one of those people? They feel sorry for those of us who need Christ as a crutch. All the virtue signaling you see every week in the news, you know, in the polit- in politics and all the virtue signaling and I'm more righteous than you're righteous. And you know, I feel sorry for you because you, have, you believe in Jesus. They may not persecute us, but instead they see their tolerance of our Christianity as an evidence that they don't need Jesus because look at how morally respectable they are, unlike Pastor Billy, who is so self-righteous to say that there are sinful things and righteous things. Or they see Jesus, they see belief in Jesus as a lack of intelligence. Years ago, there was a book called Don't, To Be a Christian Means You Don't Have to Check Your Brains at the Door. Well, when David truly repented, it was not merely because of what he did to Bathsheba or her husband Uriah. This is so important, guys. I think, and, and for parenting, I think it's an important thing for parenting, but it's just an all of life thing. I don't know that we will ever truly repent if all we think we've, if the only one we think we've wronged is some other human being. Because we're just deceit, our hearts are deceitful enough to think. I could justify what, the way I'm acting because of the way they're acting. So yeah, I probably shouldn't have said what I said, but she shouldn't have said what she said either. David knew he committed adultery with Bathsheba. David put a contract out on Uriah's life as her husband. He was a murderer and somehow wasn't convicted until, and some of you know where I'm going with this in in the Psalms, I think 51, he realizes, oh my God, 
Yeah, it was bad what I did to Bathsheba. It was horrific what I did to Uriah. But against you and you alone have I sinned. I think that's the only place repentance is found. When, you, when it's now you've personally offended a righteous and holy God who all he's ever done is hold out to you nail-scarred hands to prove his love to you. That's when hearts begin to change is when you're recognizing that even after my salvation, <laughs> my sin is still against him and him alone. But that keeps a heart tender, doesn't it? Anybody struggling? Don't raise your hand. Anyone struggling with some hardness of heart? It may be because you've been more aware of somebody else's sin or, or you're justifying your behavior to others and you've taken your eyes off of, I've offended the living God who still sent his son to die for my sins. Your heart will soften. <laughs> your heart will soften. And so he says, so he comes, the Holy Spirit comes to bring conviction of sin. Uh, we can't convict other people, you guys. Parents, we cannot convict our children. I, I, I thought that I, I, was, I could get the message across more if I raised my voice to my boys. I'm so thankful my boys still like me. Ah. Uh, the Holy Spirit has got to get the message to their heart. But you and I are responsible. Just like putting wood in, in, on a, a grate for a fire. God doesn't, doesn't just light a fire without wood. He calls parents to put the wood of God's word in the, in the fire grate of their heart, so to speak. It's up to the Lord to light it. But it's up to us to make sure the wood is there. And it's there every day. We're continuing to to put the fuel for that fire to burn. He goes further and he convicts us of righteousness. And what he's talking about there is, is that people think that they can make themselves acceptable. Well, I walked an aisle or I was baptized. That's why we try to be very careful about baptism here and not to, not to put too, too big a fence around it. And yet to, to do all we can on this side of heaven to, to ask that person, to, have you truly come to know Jesus savingly? Because your works of righteousness, they're, they're like filthy rags. And what's worse is you're going, to be, you're going to get this little inoculation against true Christianity because of your, your idea of righteousness. West Texas is filled with people who, who would say, yes, I believe in Jesus, and I'm going to go to heaven based on my righteousness, based on my baptism, based on my church attendance, because I asked Jesus into my heart, because I did this, or because I did that, versus what an amazing mystery. God made the first move to me a sinner. He opened my heart. He melted my hard heart. He convicted me of my sin against him. And he loved me still. Christ paid the price for me. He even gave me the grace by which my faith was born. Why am I saved? Ask him. <laughs> it's, it's all by grace that I've been saved. And so he convicts the world that their righteousness will not save them. But whose will? 
33 years of perfect obedience, right? Jesus, not just in his actions. Haven't you kind of played that game before? I've been doing pretty good in terms of my looking righteous. Yeah, but are you yelling at people in your car? Jesus was righteous in his thoughts. He was righteous in his desires. He was righteous in his motives. And then, for whoever would believe in him, and he says, you know, I'm going to go to be with the Father. I'm going to leave and go be with the Father. What is he saying? That proves to you that God accepted my work on your behalf. He, saved my, he accepted my saving work on your behalf. He accepted my 33 years of sinless life. So guess, guess what I can do now? I can count you as though you did all of my works of righteousness. I'm going to count you as righteous. You're going to be righteous in my righteousness. So yes, the Spirit comes to convict of righteousness. How unrighteous we are and how hope-filled we are that the righteousness of Jesus has come. And to convict us of judgment because, of course, nobody thinks there is one. And he uses Satan as, a, as an illustration there. He just talks about how certain Satan's judgment was. And just as certain as Satan's judgment was, so will be the judgment of all those who do not turn to Christ in saving faith. And it's an eternal judgment because we broke the commandment of an eternal God. And the only righteous consequence of breaking a commandment of an eternal God is an eternal punishment. And that's why we needed somebody eternal to die on the cross. The God-man, the mystery of, of Jesus being fully God and fully man, because in being fully God, he had all of eternity in him, didn't he? And he could pay the eternal price of all the sins we committed. That should give us hope in evangelism that God can open the hardest heart. That should give us help in evangelism knowing that he is the missionary who is always present with us when we share the gospel. We can't convict people of ourselves, but we can share the gospel and we can share love. And that's the spirit-filled life, guys. That's why it's better that Jesus go. We need Christ's spirit uh, Eric, why don't you go ahead and come up, buddy? Uh, we, we need Christ's spirit to accomplish Christ's mission. And the end of it is to, to achieve glory for Christ, for Christ to be glorified. So verses 12, 13, and 15 we're going to talk more about when we get to John 17 because he talks about, I'm going to lead you into all the truth. At that point, he's just talking to the 12 there, to the 11 there, those who would be apostles because he would be speaking to them not just prior to his death, but through the Holy Spirit. He's going to continue to be speaking to them in the inspiration in the writing of Scripture. So when it says, be led into all truth, because West Texas, you run into a lot of funny people. And you talk, you want people who don't think they need church, they don't need any, you know, the Spirit will lead me into all truth. Well, not if you're not reading your Bible. All truth is what God gave us in His Word. 
to know the character of God, to know the sinfulness of man, to know the redemptive plan of Jesus, to know how to grow in godliness. All that we need is there. So the one closing point that I just love about this, verse 14, the Holy Spirit will glorify me. The Spirit will glorify Jesus, not just in helping us know him better, not just in helping us become more like him in character and mission, not just in giving us ministry gifts that are always going to be founded on the scriptures. We're a continuationist church. We believe that all the gifts of the Spirit are operative today as in, as, as in the, early, uh, the early church. But they're operative in the soil of his word. That You can't separate them from, from the truth of scripture. That's why we can be confident about them. And they're given not to point us to the Spirit or for us to have spiritual experiences, but they're, they're given so that we would love one another. And that when people come into our gatherings, they go, man, you guys really love each other. And it almost seems like it's, there's a supernatural power to your love. But the Holy Spirit is saying, you know what I really love to do, though, is I love to shine the spotlight on Jesus. I just love to shine the spotlight on Jesus. Next time, if you go to D.C., they, they, I mean, the monuments are amazing, and they're amazing during the daytime, but I hope you actually take a tour at night because the spotlights, the, sp the lighting on Lincoln, oh, it's beautiful in the daytime. And it's beautiful. I, and I just remember what he did and what he lived for and the price he paid. Spotlight on the Washington Monument. If you go... I did this. We were there in November. Uh, and, and I went and I actually looked at, said, tell me, how silly is this? I'm looking at the spotlight. Now, it's not nighttime, so I'm not looking at it like that. But I'm looking at the spotlight going, man, this thing has to be so powerful. What's silly about what I'm doing? Because the monument's behind me. All the spotlight exists for is for me to be captivated by the beauty of the monument. That's the ministry of the Spirit. You guys, and it's so exciting to hear as we mature in God's Word and practice God's Word and abide in Christ. And do you know your singing is becoming more passionate? Not because we've got a rocking band, right? These guys, I'm not, not just, I'm not dissing here. We've got an amazing worship team. We've got an amazing worship team. But we don't have smoke, ice, dry ice stuff blowing. We don't have all that blowing. You know what's so great about your singing is the passion increases according to the truth you're singing. Wow! Why? Because the Spirit is working. The Spirit is shining the spotlight on Jesus. And you know what's doing in our hearts? In our dead, sterile, apathetic hearts. He helps us not just to know about Jesus. He helps us cherish Jesus, you guys. Oh, I'm going to need knee surgery one of these days. You guys stand with me. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's what it is to be spirit-filled, is we are captivated by Jesus, and we cherish him, and we treasure him for who he is and what he's done for us. And he sent us his spirit to indwell us. Oh, far better is the spirit inside us than Jesus beside us. Amen.
thing. 